Thank you for joining us once again here on Diversity Inclusion. We had the wonderful, amazing, fantastic opportunity to speak to Dr. Mikhail Coleman, who is the current president of the IPA, the International Publishers Association. Uh, Dr. Coleman's publishing career spans 25 years. He's worked for Elsevier in Amsterdam, Tokyo, and Frankfurt. He's uh, based in Amsterdam, and he's also a member of the Dutch Publishers Association and boasts a very impressive array of academic qualifications, including a PhD in astrophysics from Columbia University in New York, where he studied as a Fulbright Scholar. Uh, Dr. Coleman is also a very instrumental figure in terms of instituting different practices as far as diversity and inclusion are concerned. I had a fantastic time talking with him. He was actually in Taipei during our conversation. Uh, but he's a fantastic individual and uh, he actually also has a, a very good sense of humor. Please enjoy our talk. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I just want to get the correct pronunciation of your name. Mikhail, is that correct? Yeah, it's difficult. It's a Dutch name, so it's Mikhail. Mikhail. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, great. Yeah, I have a, a unique name as well, so I just wanted to make sure that you know I was on the right page. Mikhail, got it. Yes. Um, How do I pronounce your name? Yeah, sure. My name is pronounced Jirogi. Okay. Jirogi. Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. So yeah, Mikhail, think yeah, it's uh yeah, it's a quite an interesting uh, name. So yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I know that uh, you're probably very busy in, in Taipei. How is Taipei, by the way? It's very hot. It's very humid, but it's really nice. <laughs> it's great. Okay, good. And what actually um, br brought you to Taipei? What's going on there now? Oh, well, I, I'm married to a Taiwanese. Oh, nice, okay. Yeah, so I'm visiting my, my husband who is working here for the, the Taiwanese government. He's a oh, diplomat. wonderful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. But I'm also doing some work for Elsevier and, and for an organization called Workplace Pride. Oh, okay. Uh, for LGBTI workplace inclusion while I'm here. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was reading about your involvement with the IPA as well. Um, and just for, for the listeners that haven't are not too familiar with it, um, can you explain just a little bit about the mandate of the IPA as well as, you know, how large it is, is it uh, and the membership? Sure. So, so the IPA is an umbrella organization of publishers' organizations in different countries. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, uh, in the UK, you have the UK Publishers Association, and in Germany, it's the Börsenverein. So they represent you know, English publishers or German publishers, and they themselves are a member of the IPA. And so we have a membership around the world, uh, something around 80 uh, organizations are a member, mm -hmm. um, and we have two important pillars uh, and one is around uh, copyrights because mm -hmm. we strongly feel that uh, copyright is an enabler of innovation and investment and the other one is around freedom to publish so the IPA is an organization that represents you know trade organizations uh, but it's also an NGO and it mm -hmm. has a human rights mandate and that's around freedom to publish Okay, fantastic. Um, and, and just in terms of what uh, inspires you about publishing, what would you say that would be? Hello? Yeah, 
I'm still here. Oh, perfect. Okay, yeah. I, yeah, I thought the the call dropped. I just received something on my phone, but I'm glad you're still there. Okay. So, well, first of all, I, I love literature. Okay. I, I think it's a beautiful way that anybody can have stories of a big plane flying over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's really close. I don't know why. It sounded really um, close, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think, uh, it went all right. Um, so, for instance, you know, when you're in Europe, you can have poetry from Portugal or oh, yeah. fiction from Finland okay. uh, at your fingertips. And mm -hmm. it's, of course, publishing that enables that. And, and another very important part of publishing is, is education. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be, you know, for young kids. Um, and maybe later we can talk about uh, the Sustainable Development Goal Book Club, the SG Book Club. Yeah. Um, but it's also for, uh, you know, education in, in, in primary schools, high mm -hmm. schools, but also at, uh, at, a, at a higher level at, uh, for universities. I work for Elsevier, the science publisher, and it's all about providing exactly the right uh, trustworthy information so that yes. you know, scientists can so uh, do their research well or that health professionals can uh, you know cure their patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, you know what? Talk to us a little bit about the Sustainable Development Book Club, uh, as you mentioned, because that, that's something that I think is, is fantastic and it's also very interesting. Yeah, so for many years, uh, the IPA and the UN, we got together uh, at mm -hmm. Frankfurt and at some point we said, what can we do together? Yes. And we decided we would launch a book club and it's around the SDGs, and so there are 17 of them. Okay. Um, and we launched the very first one at the Bologna Book Fair in mm -hmm. April. Um, and so we'll do this for 17 months. Uh, and then so in, in September 2020, uh, we will be, uh, the book club will be uh, complete. And so every month we announce a selection of books mm -hmm. in the six UN languages mm -hmm. uh, and they're targeting kids between the age of six and 12. Okay. So you can imagine if it's uh, the month around gender equality, mm -hmm. uh, a little boy in Peru can mm -hmm. read children books in Spanish, which are around that theme. Yes. Or a young girl in China can also read in Chinese mm -hmm. books around gender equality. Mm -hmm. um, and we have lots of partners, actually. We don't do this alone. So the UN and the IPA were, the, you know, say, the founding partners. Uh, but in the meantime, the uh, International Organization of Librarians, IFLA, joined mm -hmm. the Bologna the Children Book Fair joined, uh, the European and International Booksellers Organization joined, mm -hmm. EB, an organization targeting uh, books uh, for young adults, joined. Uh, so we have, you know, this, all the players, I would say, in the value chain, mm -hmm. from, from booksellers to librarians to publishers, uh, they're all there, uh, and everybody loves the project. Mm -hmm. And so every month we get very busy to select uh, the very best books uh, for kids around the SDGs. Okay, and, and just about that, I'm wondering how are books chosen uh, to be uh, select? Uh, how are books chosen yeah. to be a part of this particular initiative? Yeah, that's a good question. So, mm. with all the partners, we come up with a long list, okay. and then we have a, uh, a selection committee mm -hmm. that that selects the very best out of the long list. And so, per uh, language, per SCG, there are between three to five titles. Okay. So, uh, Okay, perfect. Yeah, no, that yep. sounds fantastic. And I love the way that, um, you know, the interconnectedness of it all, right? So, for example, as you were saying, you know, uh, little kids in Peru can be reading uh, the same text as, for example, you know, little kids in Shanghai, which, you know, I think is uh, is fantastic. 
Um, yeah, so, it's beautiful, and there's also a local element to it because mm-hmm. we've seen now that people they wait till the, the the books are announced, and then they organize like an event in the local bookstore or the library around the corner. So it's it's of course a global initiative with, uh, mm-hmm. with I would say local impact, which is you know great. And now we're being approached by uh, many organizations who said, oh, you know, th- there's no book club in, in my language, right? Oh, there's no interesting, one, there's yeah. no one in Norwegian or Dutch or Turkish. Mm-hmm. So how can we, you know, uh, do that? Because uh, they're now only in the, in the UN languages. Uh-huh. So, so we're now working with those organizations. So well, why don't you launch your own book club and see how that goes? And, you know, what would stop you to do the same or something similar in, in Norway? So I think uh, next year we'll see uh, you know, lots of offspring of, uh, S- of the SDG book club. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And so for those individuals that are forming those external type of book clubs, um, what would be the procedure for them to be fall under your umbrella? Would they have to then develop it sort of at a grassroots level and tell you this is what we've done so far, these are some, some of the challenges that we're facing, and in partnership we would like you to help us with these particular uh, points? Or how would that all come about for those individuals that are external at this point but would want to partner with this initiative? Yeah, so I would work with the, the local offices of the UN in those countries, okay. as well as uh, you know, you know, find again this kind of coalition of partners. So, for instance, if you want to do this in, in Norway, uh, I know they're thinking about it. Um, so they work together with the publishers, with the author organizations, with the local librarian organizations, um, and and also I, mean, I think the government will fund a part of it, um, and and. And so you must have, I think, a broad coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also don't, you know, you, you want to be seen as, as objective in the jury. Yes. So that also helps, of course, if, if everybody is represented. So it's you know, not publishers selecting books of other publishers, of course. And that's mm-hmm. what we, we're not doing. Oh, um, so, and I really hope that that will be up and running next year. We have our IPA Congress okay. in, in Norway, in Lillehammer. Oh, great. Um, so, uh, and I think I know that the SDGs are very prominent on the agenda there. Um, mm-hmm. So, when we launched this concept, it was last year uh, at the eve of the, uh, the General Assembly at the UN. Mm-hmm. There was a special session for SDG leaders, and uh, the Norwegian uh, Prime Minister was there as well, as well oh. as the Secretary General of the UN. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah, it was great. And I was there, so it was, yeah, it was super <laughs> Yeah, that's been amazing. Um, so it's interesting, I was reading this recent survey that said uh, within uh, the publishing industry, publishing professionals, it found that more than 80% identified as Caucasian. So I'm just wondering, you know, what more do you think needs to be done to make sure that there's more diversity, more inclusion within the publishing industry? Yeah, I think this is a, a very, very good topic to, to discuss, mm-hmm. and, and it touches on, on a broader discussion about diversity and inclusion in, in the publishing industry, mm-hmm. and, and that can be around gender, around yes. ethnicity, as mm-hmm. you just mentioned, uh, sexuality, exactly. age, education, yeah. uh, even regionalism, so for instance, uh, in, in the UK, you see that most, most publishers are from the London era, area. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so, what I like about uh, the example of the UK is, is that there they have done surveys, yes. and so they have very good data. So mm-hmm. you just mentioned one statistic. Uh, but I think the, the, the deepest and the richest data on, on uh, diversity and inclusion in the publishing industry comes from the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and for instance, it showed that uh, uh, you know, lots of women are, are working uh, so in, in the 
the publishing industry. Yes. Um, it doesn't always translate that they are in the, in the well-paid jobs and, and, mm-hmm. and, and that they are the more senior executive jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also reflected in their salary. And in the UK, there's this thing as gender pay gap. Exactly, so yes. And that is you know, still a lot of work to be done there, also for, for my own company, Elsevier. I'll be very honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have data about ethnicity, and they show that uh, the ethnic minorities are clearly underrepresented in the, in the publishing industry. Uh, they, they knew this already, a great initiative for uh, internships um, from, from ethnic minorities. Uh, and that has been a bit tough going, so mm-hmm. difficult to you know get the right uh, internships, and even when they are on board, uh, unlike other interns, they don't always stay in in the publishing industry. Okay. Um, partly maybe a bit reflecting that generation uh, that people do move around a lot, and you know the, the maybe my generation, I'm in my fifties, people would stay at the same company for a long time. That's kind of gone, mm-hmm. but it also reflects perhaps that uh, you know. The, sense of belonging uh, um, and, and that I think we have, we have to change and that, that touches on a, a more difficult uh, mm-hmm. topic and that's of course the company culture. Yes. Uh, how can you change the company culture and so uh, one of the, the ways to start doing that if, is of course the awareness mm-hmm. <laughs> that we first start talking about diversity <laughs> and inclusion yes. um, and that is a discussion I think everybody should have. I think there is a, a moral aspect. It's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. uh, but luckily it's also the smart thing to do because yes. there's very good research that shows that companies that are more diverse and more inclusive, that they perform better, they financially perform better, mm-hmm. they take better decisions, uh, they're more innovative, and they're better to attract also uh, uh, you know talent and also to retain talent. So. Exactly. And it's interesting what you mentioned because it just reminded me of something that came out about Google that uh, said that they are also, you know, taking these steps in terms of making sure that their uh, company is more inclusive, but they found the same thing that you did in the sense that they're having a lot of trouble retaining individuals from specific ethnic groups. And what they found actually, too, was that the culture was broken in terms of really making sure that these individuals felt like they were part of the company rather than uh, feeling like they were outsiders. So now they're actually taking great pains to making sure that, you know, people do feel welcome. There's a welcoming culture. Uh, people feel like, you know, they can reach out to, to different individuals within the company. So I, I do also agree with you that that portion is actually extremely important to feel a part of an organization. Uh, is very key in terms of not only progression in terms of your professional life, but also just uh, creating a, a culture uh, in which these various individuals can grow into more responsible or a senior type of positions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are two aspects here which are important. And one is the role models. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you come into an organization where, you know, I mean, to put a bit blunt, everybody's white. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you look up and you see, oh my God, I've, you know, there are ten levels above me, and uh, you know, and I, I, I don't kind of identify with any of them. <laughs> that doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, they don't look like me. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and the other one is is mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, 
there, of course, I mean, in, in the ideal world, there would be some role models. Mm -hmm. And if they are more active in mentoring, uh, that would also be great. But, you know, yeah. And anybody can mentor it. It's, 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 it's a bit easier to, to kind of have, say, uh, LGBTI uh, mm -hmm. executives mentor oh, definitely. Uh, young LGBTI recruits mm -hmm. or, you know, people of certain uh, ethnicity mentor each other. Yeah, no, I think that's also extremely important um, because for individuals coming in, it's extremely important for you to be able to see a reflection of yourself. And also just in terms of seeing reflection within society, because, you know, if you go into various corporations, as you're saying, they may be, you know, 12 or 13 people above you and you're thinking, wait a minute, this is really not like the society that I go into once I actually leave this company. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said too, just to, in terms of developing empathy for different communities. Because if you're around those communities, then you start to really uh, empathize with them and just see them as connected to your particular experience as well. So, you know, you become familiar uh, with their uh, experience, and also that allows you to, um, you know, really connect with them on a on a personal basis. So yeah, yes, and I think there's other aspects because we're publishers yes and we have these publications right so mm -hmm. we also we can play this 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 agent of social change uh, by the, the the books and the topics uh, we publish um and and there you know take for instance children books as an example I yes mean, uh, if, if all the kids are are, are white and all the parents are, are straight mm -hmm. and it just confirms you know the 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 majority view of, of society, um, not much will change, but you have this opportunity to uh, to change society there as well, to mm -hmm. have this diversity of uh, in in the topics and the themes in, in our publications. Oh, definitely. I think that's yeah, that's also very important. Very key. So I'm, I'm interested in finding out what are, if you could give the, the IPA and the publishing industry two critiques and two compliments, I'm curious about what they would be. Well, let me start with, with a compliment. Sorry, it's good that <laughs> we are talking about diversity and inclusion yes. on the agenda. Okay. Um, I'm very pleased that uh, you know the the current IPA leadership. So that's not me. Um, uh, you know, are, are, are carrying that torch forward. So uh, mm -hmm. I know that uh, President Zesser and also Vice President uh, Badur Al Qasimi is uh, are very passionate about this topic. Um, our Vice President has been organizing. Uh, special events uh, which are publisher events and then er is, is spelled h-e-r in capitals okay. so, for instance, there are dinners for all female publishers where oh, they all great. get together okay. and it's amazing you mm -hmm. know how large the group is and how vibrant uh, so i think that that's extremely positive i'm also mm. very uh, encouraged uh, by some of the ipa members like in the uk pa uh, that have this active program, they, they have awareness, they have mm -hmm. awards, they have trainings, mm -hmm. they, uh, they have a trainee program, etc. So I think that's all great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, what I worry about is if I look at the statistics, mm -hmm. right? So um, the publishing industry is perhaps in, in some countries a little bit more conservative. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's time for some change there as well. Um, of course, the IPA is, is a global organization, so yes. we represent all these different 
publishing organizations in different countries with different cultures and traditions. Mm-hmm. So I realized that you cannot change everything overnight. Oh, definitely. Uh, but in, in that spectrum, there is, you know, there are certain issues. Uh, so I mean, if I might just mention one, uh, like in Russia, mm-hmm. uh, there is there strict legislation against promotion of LGBTI topics, oh, which might right. affect yeah. minors. Mm-hmm. So this. You know, real censorship there, mm-hmm. but that goes much broader. I mean, it's always, you know, frames like it's to protect children. I don't know exactly from what, but okay, that's another discussion to have. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, it, it does have, you know, a devastating effect on, on the whole LGBTI community. Oh, definitely. And, and, and as IPA, we, we fight against censorship and also mm-hmm. against censorship around, uh, you know, uh, sexuality uh, as, as a theme for publication. Oh, definitely. Um, and as you said that too, because I remember reading something about there was some type of controversy when China joined the IPA as well. So I'm just wondering if you could uh, touch on that and speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, so there, we have two key pillars, and one is fighting for copyright, and the yes. other one is freedom to publish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the, chi- the Chinese publishers uh, applied for membership, the question was, well, uh, like every new member is scrutinized mm-hmm. on those two criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we've seen quite some progress um, on, on on copyright in China, mm-hmm. um, so so that was you know an easier decision to make. Okay. Uh, but the question was, would uh, the Publishers Association of China uh, are they truly independent? Mm-hmm. Could, they, could they really, I mean, fight for freedom to publish? Uh, and we're not judging a country there, so uh, oh, of course, yes. China, mm-hmm. which is a, is a member, but it's the Publishers Association of China. So, in, for mm-hmm. instance, in Turkey, where there are lots of issues with uh, freedom of speech and freedom to publish, yes. uh, we don't, you know, it's not the Turkey which is a member, but it's the Turkish PA which is a member. Yes. And, and they have been very active in speaking out against uh, you know, censorship and against the restrictions on freedom to, to publish. Mm-hmm. And so the question was, you know, how would that go in, in China? Yes. Uh, could our colleagues who work for the Publishers Association of China have that freedom to, to do that? And I think, uh, yeah, so that, that was uh, where the, what the controversy was about. <laughs> okay. Um, and and uh, just with regards to the subscription-based model uh, with regard to publishing, I know Cengage is uh, moving and adopting this type of approach. I'm just wondering, how beneficial do you think it is to the end user? And also, what type of value do you think it would have for publishers? So, I work for Elsevier, where we've had embraced the subscription model, you know, decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we find it, uh, you know, a model that works well. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, now we're moving into a, yet another model, it's called the open access, where the author is paying and it's, it's free for the users. Okay. Maybe not so intuitive, you know, from, for, for other branches of publishing, but uh, it certainly seems to be working very well in the sciences. Um, so I'm no expert on educational publishing. Um, I find it interesting that Cengage is actually merging with another company, so there's lots of activity. <laughs> yeah, yeah McGraw-Hill, I believe, yeah, they're, they're merging exactly. with McGraw-Hill. Exactly, they're giant, it's becoming an even larger company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they are embracing a bit the Netflix model. Yes. Uh, right. And That's correct. Yeah, it seems it seems like like for the end user, uh, great because they can you just like you might enjoy Netflix. There's lots of choice, mm-hmm. and you can uh, 
and before, can you imagine, you, know, you were restricted to you know, one or two textbooks, and now you can choose for many, 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 and you can read them uh, as much. So in that sense, the, the model, I think, is, is uh, for the end user, it, it's, uh, it, it's an improvement. Mm-hmm. And that actually uh, touches on something else as well. So I wanted to get your thoughts and opinions just with respect to what do you think will happen or what trends do you think will occur in, you know, in, the, in the next five to ten years as far as uh, the publishing industry is concerned? Well, maybe we should first think of what will remain the same, because I think that's, that's important. <laughs> so what, what are publishers? And yes. I think the key is always that the publishers are there to secure quality and trust mm-hmm. and so for in science publishing we have a very strict peer review system so in the end it's only trustworthy material which which uh, which ends up in our publications in our mm-hmm. journals in our books yes and also when you're an educational publisher it's extremely important that, uh, that, that the textbooks or maybe now in the future more digital formats mm-hmm. are reliable, trustworthy information. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that I think is a key element which continues to be very important mm-hmm. and um, even more important now because we live in a world where there is you know, lots of uh, you know, distrust and lots of untrustworthy material. Oh, yes. So I see that the, the publishers are, in that sense, you know, beacons of trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will continue to go. So the way it will happen will change. And so and then we'll see that, that you know, you, you mentioned yourself, there might be different business models, uh, there might be a, a, you know, a shift from buying individual books to more a uh, collection of books or a subscription model, mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe which I mentioned before, uh, the open access model, which I think is very healthy that's open all access, of that yeah. is, is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but it cannot be at the expense of what we do well, and that is provide trust, um, uh, to, trust to our end users, trust to our readers. Mm-hmm. Um, I do see, of course, great changes with uh, going digital. Yes. Um, in, my, in my own company, you know, we went digital in the 1990s. Uh, mm-hmm. I launched the very first online journal at Elsevier in the oh, 1990s. Nice. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, and so we see now that yeah, we can do so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, we can do recommendations. Um, and for instance, we're now deploying artificial intelligence. So for instance, you are a doctor in the emergency room yes. and you don't have time to kind of start Googling and you don't know how reliable that is. You don't mm. want to go to textbooks and go to you know, <laughs> chapter five and then you know, section <laughs> three. You have to find exactly the right information mm-hmm. quickly. Yes. And then maybe drill down a little bit further if, mm-hmm. you know, if the need be there. And so we are providing those types of solutions now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a combination of, I would say, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. together with again this this corpus of trustworthy material. Mm-hmm. So, which uh, is extremely powerful. Yeah, that is extremely powerful. I'm, I'm interested though because you launched a, a digital uh, project in the 1990s. I'm just wondering what type of, you know, impact it had, and also what were some of the challenges that you faced in terms of being, you know, so innovative that early. Well, uh, it was super exciting. Yes, I can imagine. And, and, and 
out. So I, I launched a journal in, in this was in, in astronomy, mm -hmm. and, and I think that Marcus, the, the target audience, was ready for it because yes. they were always a bit at the forefront of change. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things we we included were movies. Oh, great! And of okay. That the bandwidth was very low, so it, that was very difficult. <laughs> uh, now you know you would you know took in the movie would be there, but then you had to kind of wait a little bit. Yes, the buffering. Um, yeah. The other innovation which we introduced is. We identified, uh, you know, all kind of, uh, in this case, astronomical objects in the text. So oh, okay. So we talked about a star mm. or a galaxy, and then we link to a database oh, where you have more information. Okay. And that was also completely new, which is now, you know, mm -hmm. pretty standard, right? You're in a text and you go to Wikipedia, but of course Wikipedia didn't exist. Um, okay, we had yeah. to think about licensing, about new models, uh, about copyright, uh, which all had to change mm -hmm. uh, because it was not just a print product. And then there was also this trust element, which I mentioned before. So yes. people didn't trust something which was only digital. Yeah, you cannot imagine it now. Yes. So yeah. we did. We, so we did publish everything in print as well, okay. uh, which was more for marketing than for other, any other reasons, because people still needed to hold that journal <laughs> issue in their hands. Yes. Said, okay. Now I. Have it's it's real. Yeah. It, yeah. It's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That has changed, of course. Now, now you publish online, and people says, "Yes, it's really published." Now. <laughs> Even if they've never seen the print out of it. Yeah. So interesting because you're mentioning a lot of uh, really interesting innovations as far as technology, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are just in terms of uh, how blockchain is is being used in publishing, and especially in the area of supporting peer review and, and science publishing. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I haven't been following the blockchain discussions recently, but okay. I did look into it like a year ago. Yes. And then it seemed that, that it didn't really take off really fast in, in, in the publishing industry. I saw it in other, other areas. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, with blockchain, the key element there is that you, re, you replace some kind of, uh, how, how you call it, uh, a chain of trust, right? Exactly. So, you, know, you yes. go to the bank and you get you know, mm -hmm. a financial transaction. So mm -hmm. that can be done by blockchain, or you know, you buy a house and you need a mortgage or papers from the notary. That can be done by blockchain. Mm -hmm. And then the question is: so what is that that chain which is you know trusted by a third party, which will be replaced by blockchain? Mm -hmm. Wasn't always clear to me what would be the right equivalent uh, in, in the publishing industry. I heard that people are experimenting with it okay. um, in, in peer review a bit. Um, and then I heard the scalability is really an issue. So, yes. I mean, so for instance, uh, the cost would go up really fast. So, mm -hmm. uh, and that might change over time, right? So that's always mm -hmm. with new technologies. Um, they, they become cheaper and cheaper over time. But now it would be really expensive. Mm -hmm. Just to kind of give you some numbers, sure. just at Elsevier, which is you know one of, of, of many uh, science, technology, and medical publishers, we get 1.5 million uh, article submissions every year. Oh wow! Yeah. Of which we only publish one third, and that one third is rewritten mm -hmm. two or three times. Oh. So you can imagine if you see this flow of articles, mm -hmm. and then they go to the journal editor, from the journal editor to the peer review, the peer reviewer, and then back to the journal editor, and then to the author, it will be revised. And this goes back and forth many, many times. Mm -hmm. If there's a small payment per step to the blockchain model, you know, you know, we're talking about you know millions of transactions, and oh, it's definitely. extremely costly. So, mm -hmm. but 
I really hope that you know when when you, know, you and I will talk in a couple of years and that will be solved. <laughs> I hope so too. I'm more excited about uh, you know artificial intelligence uh, mm -hmm. and applications there, machine learning and knowledge graphs, etc. So. Yeah, and and so how do you see that developing in the next five to ten years? Uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah, super exciting area. Mm -hmm. um, we actually we, we did a study of uh, of AI and we used AI to study um, uh, articles in AI. So we used okay. uh, machine learning to kind of determine whether an article was touching on artificial intelligence or not. Oh. And we also used another type of AI to kind of group all uh, you know. Uh, articles around AI together so mm. we have you know, so we mapped out the, the area of artificial intelligence using AI it was like really interesting mm -hmm. um, and then we saw of course it's a field which is growing rapidly um, uh, there are uh, you know, uh, quite some differences per country uh, if you look at the research in AI mm -hmm. so for instance in the US lots of research is done at, at, uh, at private companies like Microsoft or Google uh, while in China, uh, lots of research is done by government organizations, and they also did different type of, of, of research. In China, it's very much about uh, recognition, uh, you know, visual recognition, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, the Europeans, collectively, they actually are the largest uh, contributor on AI. Oh, okay. um, yeah, so and, and they do pretty well. The Americans have the highest impact. So yeah, it's very interesting if you kind of map out uh, that field. Mm -hmm. um, and I see great, uh, you know, applications. But again, there, um, you know, AIs are, are just algorithm. But yeah. they always they need input data. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see that lots of applications they just get the input data from you know the internet somewhere or accumulate some kind of crazy data sets. But the trust and the reliability there is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And I think for us as, as publishers. Uh, uh, if we deploy AI solutions, you know, we must make sure that they are also you know, trustworthy. So, um, and that's why the, the input data is crucial there. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, this must be high quality, but also that you know you can trust the algorithms. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, you know, there are also quite some biases in AI. Yes. Um, so, if your input data, you know, say if, if you talk about humans, is all about uh, um, you know, elderly uh, white males then mm -hmm. the output data certainly <laughs> will reflect that mm -hmm. so uh, yeah it's very important that you realize that, that mm -hmm. there are built-in biases there as well um, if you're not careful mm -hmm. and it's interesting because what you just said reminded me of a, a, an article that i read about the way in which uh, ai is actually being applied to face recognition and yeah. all of the input data, you know, as you were saying, had been all, you know, sort of light skin, maybe European descendants. And so what ended up happening with, you know, different communities, whether it be African or, or uh, South American, they found that the, the algorithm had an, an immense uh, problem with recognizing those particular faces, uh, just in terms of even having the ability to differentiate between uh, different faces. So yeah, certainly the input data is extremely important uh, because if it's not reflective of society, you actually, you know, can exclude large portions, large swaths of society, uh, which I think, you know, is, is extremely detrimental as we move forward and as technology becomes more pervasive, more people need to be included and at the table making these types of determinations. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, so 
with regard, I read something very interesting about you as well that you studied astrophysics. So I'm just wondering what your your inspiration in terms of um, you know your academic trajectory, uh, you know, studying astrophysics. What led you to study astrophysics? Well, yeah. What is more exciting than studying the universe? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Nothing. Nothing more exciting. <laughs> around us oh yes. what will become of us yes uh, yeah. then you know astronomy uh, answers those questions well certainly asks those questions mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the answers of course change over time which makes it also <laughs> very exciting yeah. so you know i was very fortunate uh, yeah i studied first in, in my own country in leiden and then i went to columbia where i had a fulbright uh, and i studied quasars which are galaxies which are extremely bright and so you can even study them uh, you know, at the far end of our universe, uh, and I use all kind of satellites and telescopes to oh, study wow. them. So yeah, it was a super exciting time. I really enjoyed it, and I also, you know, published uh, some articles, not with Elsevier, with uh, <laughs> another uh, publication, uh, other publishers. Uh, so yeah, it was a, a wonderful, exciting time. And after that, I kind of uh, branched out into uh, science publishing. But first, mm -hmm. I was the astronomy publisher. So. I really knew that community very well. I went to the astronomy meetings. I still, you know, visited observatories on Mount. Oh wow! Yeah, and, uh, yeah, that was a, a very exciting time. And I think that field is still, yeah, I wouldn't say it. Well, maybe at the forefront of science, maybe together with other fields. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's still super exciting. It was happening there, and always launching new satellites and new studies, etc. Mm -hmm. Now they can measure, you know, gravitational waves. So it's a, it's a completely new lens on the universe, like yeah. uh, not not what we're used to, because we often we, we look at uh, radiation, right, light mm -hmm. to, to study the universe. But with these waves, these gravitational waves, it's 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 a completely different uh, you know set of eyes we have. We can almost listen to the universe in a way. So. Yeah, super exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm uh, reading something too where they had taken some, uh, I guess, pictures or some visual uh, recordings of of the black hole. Or was it? Yes. Yeah. So exactly, they they combined uh, uh, many different uh, radio telescopes to have a very very uh, close up uh, image of uh, of a black hole, which mm -hmm. was published earlier. Yeah, super. Exciting yeah, yeah, that's as well. that's fantastic, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I also read, too, that you had worked in, in Amsterdam, Tokyo, and Frankfurt. Um, I'm just wondering what some of the, the most memorable experiences you had while you were you're working there. Yeah, I've been really, I mean, fortunate in, in my job to work many different places. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I think Japan, well, it's a unique country. Yes. Um, Amazing sophistication, mm -hmm. um, the sense of style, yes. super polite, yes. super friendly. Oh, yeah. you know, I, I loved working there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, yeah, also in that country, you're completely safe. You can leave your, your iPads in, in the train and then you know, go back and it's will, still there. Yeah. Yeah, or, or <laughs> they will, no, they will, yeah, it will be. Know, report it and then they will make uh, see to it that it will be brought to your hotel you know it's like kind of amazing wow yeah um, so i really enjoyed that, that experience and i was there in the 1990s so mm -hmm. uh, 
so there were not many tourists there either so yeah it was, was great also to work here with my colleagues um and one one thing i i did in japan mm-hmm. I, I visited uh, uh super kamiokande which is uh, uh, a way to detect uh neutrinos so oh interesting they, they, okay they, yeah they, they they took an old mine and they mm-hmm. filled it completely with water and detectors oh, and wow. then so neutrinos which are particles get go through straight through everything also through the earth um and then so they can detect a special type of, of particles but it was so exciting to go into the mine and see uh, you go you go deep 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 underground and then see all these detectors there oh, wow. uh, and then there was a supernova not uh, long uh, after i was there oh wow okay. off, and they detected that supernova you know in in that uh, with this neutrino detector so yeah that's wow. a great experience um and i also loved the living in, in germany uh, there it was a completely different branch it was in organic chemistry mm-hmm. um where um uh, we, we developed this yeah a new way of uh, kind of searching for chemical compounds and, oh. and reactions mm-hmm. uh, which was also yeah very exciting for me but there i was a uh, managing director of, of the office so uh, you know has its own uh, new uh, uh, rewards and challenges so to say <laughs> uh, yeah, i enjoyed that as well and i like living in in in, uh, in germany and mm-hmm. i go back there a lot so actually i go back there next month oh wow uh, okay for a music festival so oh which music festival yeah yeah it's a it's it's in it's called Bayreuth Bayreuth it's in Bavaria and it's uh, all uh, operas by uh, Richard Wagner oh okay nice (laughs) 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 everyone needs some Wagner in their life I think right at at some point Um, (laughs) so I I read also that um you had uh, an IPA event in Nigeria, which went very well, which was fantastic to see. So I'm w- wondering if you could just walk us through, in terms of like the, the decision-making process, uh, things that you learned from that particular event, and also, um, you know, future events that may be in other parts of Africa. Yeah, so the IPA is, is a global organization, and we're very fortunate to have members everywhere, also yes. uh, from Africa, uh, all over Africa, I should say, and, and we have more members from, from Africa, whether it's, you know, uh, English-speaking or French-speaking or mm-hmm. uh, Arabic-speaking, so that that's great. Uh, so we decided, yeah, I guess it's already two years ago, yes. uh, to have an event, or was it one year ago, in Lagos. Um, yes, yeah, so Lagos. That's, I think one of the first, maybe it was the first IPA event in, mm-hmm. in Africa itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I liked about it, well, first of all, lots of people showed up. It was mm-hmm. great coverage, also in the media. Perfect. It was uh, an intense full day. I can imagine, uh, and yes. It was really a seminar for African uh, publishers by African publishers. Oh, okay. uh, fantastic. So, yeah, we had lots of panels. Uh, they came from mostly, of course, you know, the region. So, uh, West Africa, okay, um, but not only Nigeria, but mm-hmm. also uh, you know some countries around there. Okay, um, and yeah, I love the you know the energy in the room, and also uh, people really wanted to, to change. Uh, but also for me, it was an eye opener you know, how difficult it is to to do business, say say in in in, in, in Lagos. Mm-hmm. You know, you send a shipment, it gets lost. Uh, mm-hmm. Issues with piracy. Uh, Etc. So mm-hmm. I was also on, uh, on Breakfast TV there. <laughs> okay. Good morning, Good morning, Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, 
make the case uh, for uh, you know more investments into publishing and, mm-hmm. and, and that it's really undermining uh, everybody if you know if, if piracy is uh, so rampant. Yes. And so we liked it so much that we had uh, not long ago a follow-up event in oh. Nairobi. Yes, I perfect. There, yes. Uh, That's a wonderful city. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been here once. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned piracy because that's actually my my next question. So you know, digital piracy definitely is a pronounced concern uh, as far as publishing is concerned and, and other creative forms. So I'm wondering what types of steps are being taken, you know, with the IPA to curtail, um, you know, this uh, this occurrence or the occurrences of of digital piracy. Yeah, so piracy is it's a problem, a significant problem, especially for as you mentioned, uh, digital publications, but also for print. Uh, yes, still. exactly. Uh, um, so, you know, we should not undermine, uh, underestimate that. Oh, definitely um, not. What I, what I find very inspiring is, for instance, um, what has been done in China, so to mention something there, mm-hmm. where the publishers work together with the government uh, in a coalition and to really say, well, let's identify what are the key problems here, mm-hmm. uh, what more the government can do, um, also in the terms of legislation, but you don't, uh, but you also need kind of execution, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there, they're really actively pursuing you know, anti-piracy measurements. Uh, so and publishers, you know, they might uh, find pirated uh, publications, um, and then they can report it to the police. Mm-hmm. I think they have a de- dedicated police, and they will definitely take action. So. That is, I think, very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. On the more legislation, uh, mm-hmm. I think it's really important that all countries sign the, the Berne Convention. It's a convention in copyright, mm-hmm. um, which means essentially that uh, copyright is also respected in, in other countries. Yes. And so, for instance, Iran doesn't sign this Berne mm-hmm. Convention, so they can kind of get away with piracy. You know, yes. The pirates mm-hmm. in Iran can get away with it. Let's yes. Put it that way. Um, and that, of course, you know, is very difficult uh, for for anybody, uh, whether it's international publishers or Iranian publishers, mm-hmm. to, to do business. Yes. And if it's undercut by piracy, it means that you cannot make those long-term investments. Mm-hmm. So you cannot, you know, think about what are the textbooks of the future, which are kind of crucial to kind of educate uh, the next generation. Yes. Um, and that's why I, I've. Piracy is like a big, big problem, and people take it a little bit lighthearted. It's somehow, I call it digital theft. Yes. People say, well, it's not, not really theft, you know, but mm-hmm. for me, it's no difference whether you'd you know, steal uh, a loaf of bread from the supermarkets or <clears throat> an ebook from a piracy site, but yes. uh, yeah, somehow it, it doesn't feel the same to some, some, some other people. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because technology is so pervasive that people just think that you know, the equivalent would be, you know, to, yeah, it's open. It's like going on your Facebook page or your Twitter feed or your Instagram account, you know, it's just information that's floating out there that we can just obtain because it's, it's online. Everything online is accessible, but it's interesting that you mentioned the burn convention because, you know, I I think that's definitely the, the right approach to take uh, with regards to making sure that there's a uniform measure 
of not only identifying who the pirates are, but also to, you know, punishing them. Because I was reading that, you know, in different countries, you know, Switzerland allows digital piracy. Um, Japan actually levies a, a stringent fines against it, but with people that use VPNs that scramble their geographical location, there's no punishment for those type of individuals. So, um, yeah, definitely a document or some type of agreement that would bind countries together in terms of their their opposition to both digital and, and print piracy, I think, would, would probably be pretty effective. Um, yeah. yeah. And there's also something to learn from piracy. So if, mm-hmm. uh, in if you know, it sounds a bit strange, but if we see that you know certain types of publications are, are pirated all the time and they're say downloaded a lot, mm-hmm. it means opportunity, right? Oh, definitely, and yeah. So, and so what we've done in some countries is that we work together mm-hmm. with governments, the publishers, uh, to come up with an alternative uh, solution there mm-hmm. uh, to licensing, for instance. So, for instance, we've seen that uh, lots of, of students were photocopying books illegally, mm-hmm. uh, and they had little you know, photocopy shops going next to the campus. So then we said, well, why don't we just step in and, and talk to the universities and the publishers and have a collective agreement mm-hmm. so that they will pay for this, um, but it's a small amount per student mm-hmm. and that you know, they can then have access to all this material legally. Yes. And that has been working in, in some countries very oh, well. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Uh, has there been any type of, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there's been any type of pushback just in terms of implementing this type of solution? Or have, have people just embraced it and said that this is something actually we want to be a part of? Well, if you're an end user, so say you're that student that needs that chapter. Yes. And then you hear that your your university has this, or the group of universities has this agreement now so that you can legally download it, the final version, <laughs> in <a> digital <laughs> format. Yeah. Then you say, okay, great, I'll do that. Yes. Um, and at the same time, you work with, you know, the, the illegal copy shops are being closed down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is actually, I think, a win-win situation. Oh, definitely. And then there's, it's called, a, you know, a collective uh, uh, agency there that, that kind of collects the fees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, does that with probably a consortium of universities. Uh, maybe the government helps with a small subsidy. So then everybody is kind of, of, of happy that you... you because there's clearly a demand there, right? If, if mm-hmm. the students are photocopying these, these, these chapters all the time, it means they need that, they want that information. Mm-hmm. It's valuable uh, to them, yeah. Yeah, but they're not willing to pay, you know, uh, uh, to buy the book and uh, pay whatever, $50 for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're interested in this one chapter. So why not have some kind of solution that, uh, you know, everybody contributes and in the end there is a legal solution. Exactly, yeah, so when everyone benefits. Uh, I also read that you were really interested in conducting some consultations just with respect to diversity and inclusion, and more specifically, you're really interested in finding out about sort of the lay of the land and which areas could make an impact as far as diversity and inclusion was concerned. And also, one thing that I found interesting was that you also wanted to get the public involved just in terms of this discussion. So my question is, what uh, type of feedback have you received from the public and just in, with respect to your experience with the IPA as far as diversity and inclusion is concerned, uh, what have you learned up to this point and what else needs to be implemented uh, in terms of moving forward? Yes, yeah, so um, I 
I'm a little bit at, at an early stage uh, okay. of this. Uh, I was only appointed uh, what's called presidential envoy for diversity and inclusion at the <laughs> IPA yeah. uh, early this year. Um, I certainly did uh, do a round of consultations uh, with, with uh, people in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, any policy forwards will be around uh, you know, the, the important pillars of Building awareness mm-hmm. um, and that can be a different, uh, different, many different ways. So I, I love, for instance, to publish her dinners yes. uh, that uh, the, the, the current vice president of the IPA, uh, uh, Al Qasimi, is doing. Um, awards are very important that you celebrate success. So if one yeah. publishing company is really putting uh, diversity and inclusion uh, uh, on the forefront and, and making progress there. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, it's very important to have uh, support from the top, so to say, mm-hmm. um, and, and so in different countries that, that can be the Minister of Education or the Minister of Culture, yes. uh, for the IPA, of course, the IPA president. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important that uh, companies realize they, they must have their house in order, so it's also an HR issue. Oh, definitely. Um, so, you know, it's unacceptable if that women are paid less than men for oh, the same role, mm-hmm. for instance. Definitely, or yeah. That there is discriminatory mm-hmm. uh, elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, if you want to go on leave or, or with pension plans, etc. Um, yes. I think the, the awareness can also be benefited a lot from uh, uh, training programs. Um, and so one, one area is around uh, unconscious bias. Yes. And we all have unconscious biases. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will have them. I will definitely have them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's good that we are aware. And not only for you know when you take crucial decisions about hiring or firing, um, mm-hmm. but also in just day-to-day conversation. So you're in a meeting, um, and I know uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but just to illustrate, mm-hmm. um, when when a female colleague says something, the chances that she's ignored are much higher than when a male colleague says something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and that's if if that's you know uh, a constant pattern, and mm-hmm. you're exposed to that year after year, mm-hmm. and it seems maybe a bit of a small thing, mm-hmm. but it's really I think detrimental for the company culture. So that's where unconscious biases come in, and you can change that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be very subtle yeah, as well, um, just in terms of the way that you know men and women interact. As, you know, Absolutely. as well. So I think definitely excavating that and bringing that to the surface and creating awareness around it uh, certainly yeah. is something to to um, you know address it and, and, and lessen it just in terms of its its occurrences. Um, but yeah, the, the gender pay gap is something that affects all industries and definitely something that needs to be addressed and needs to be eliminated uh, because if women are doing the same work as, as men, their male colleagues, definitely there should be pay equity there. Yeah, well, the gender pay gap, it's not so much that if they do exactly the same job that women are paid less, but it's just that consistently men are in high pay jobs and women are in low pay jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's also, you know, I think unacceptable. And it's, oh, it's definitely, yes. changing and it's improving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with the current change, I think it will take something like uh, like 90 years Yikes. <laughs> or to be completely addressed. So that sounds like it's ridiculous. We don't want to wait another 90 no, years. No, no, we, yeah, we should not. I read, read something interesting about 
uh, a quote that you made that you said that publishing is more than just commerce. I'm wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah, I think for us, uh, we we have uh, almost a moral obligation uh, mm-hmm. as far as publishing is concerned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we touched already in this conversation on a few elements. Yes. Uh, one that jumps out, of course, is, is the fight for freedom to publish. And I'm extremely proud that you know the IPA is at the forefront there, um, and that you know there are so many publishers who are at you know, even physical harm, and some of them pay you know with their lives mm-hmm. just for the fact that they published books uh, that are you know unacceptable by certain groups or are yes. seen as controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was IPA president, uh, we awarded a posthumous. Um, Freedom to Publish Awards, uh, Prix Voltaire, uh, to a very uh, brave publisher in mm-hmm. Bangladesh who okay. was uh, murdered because of the, uh, you know, the books he published, and and his his widow came to to receive the award, and mm-hmm. it was, I think, one of the most you know the saddest, mm-hmm. but also most memorable uh, moments of of uh, you know of that that the IPA Congress where it took place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one aspect. I think we also have a responsibility of what we publish, right? Mm-hmm. So we can be change of society, agents of societal change. Mm-hmm. So change I mentioned already the children's books, right? I was in in Bologna uh, two years ago, and they had this this bestseller. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what was the title? Uh, it, and it was about a, a gay rabbit lived uh, in the garden of uh, Vice President Pence. Uh, oh, yes, yes, it was written by a comedian, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading about that book, yeah, that's great. Yes, and it's just illustrated, it's very playful, very creative, mm-hmm. um, but it also puts, you know, a topic on the agenda, so why, could, why can rabbits not, you know, uh, fall in love, uh, male rabbits fall in love with another male rabbit? Exactly. Uh, yeah, done very nicely, mm-hmm. and and then and this year I saw a book there called um, Julian Wants to Be a Mermaid. Yes, I saw that book as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's a young kid, and and he loves to dress up, mm-hmm. and, and so you know when he's alone at home, you know he puts on his high heels, mm-hmm. his mother and his dress, etc. And then he's kind of caught by his grandmother, mm-hmm. and then she says, "This is amazing. We should celebrate this together." <laughs> and so, and they go to kind of a mermaid festival. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. And, and so he's embraced by the other, you know, more a little bit older mermaids. Yeah. Um, and I, I love that book. So, mm-hmm. you know, we can, so we can change society. I just gave some two small examples. Uh, but there are lots of examples around ethnicity there as well, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, lots to do for, for us publishers. And I also li- I love it that we contrib- contribute a little bit, uh, but I hope uh, uh, over time more and more uh, with our book club around uh, the SDGs. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, the SDGs are a blueprint of, of the society for both people uh, and planets. Yes. So the way we, we would like to achieve it by, by, by 2030. Um, so that means it's, it's really the next generation that has to make a change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we can kind of start sharing the ideas that, that underlie the SDGs, the 17 concepts, you know, at that early stage, I think it's extremely powerful. 
Yeah, oh, I definitely agree with that. Um, I'm wondering, what was the best piece of advice that you ever received? And what do you think was the most valuable advice that you've given to someone? Well, I think the best piece of advice is be bold and, okay. uh, and take risks. Yes. Uh, lots of people, they're, they're full of passion mm -hmm. and, and, and ideas and they don't always execute them mm -hmm. uh, because they think they're not empowered. Yeah. Uh, so I would say go boldly where no person has gone before. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's fantastic advice. Um, uh, what what is your favorite quote? What what is one of your favorite quotes? Oh my God! You put me a little bit on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I remember when I was a, a graduate student, I had this quote from Muhammad Ali. In my oh, school. great! Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. But now, of course, this was a while ago, and I, I, I'm sure I cannot recall it correctly. But uh, it was certainly uh, very inspirational, and it, it kind of reflects that. Uh, you are your own man and you should shape mm -hmm. your your world and your society the way you feel it should be and you know, you're not defined by others mm -hmm. and I think uh, yeah that was uh, certainly uh, the, but we'll, we'll, uh, I can look it up the quote and let you know but uh, <laughs> <certainly> <laughs> the of it. <laughs> yeah no problem uh, and what is the most um, fulfilling part of your position or, or in the way that you're involved in in all these different initiatives what is the most fulfilling part of it all For me, it's that I can contribute to the greater good, to, mm -hmm. to society. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a little uh, contribution, but still, and I'm very happy that I also inspire others to, to, to do that as well. Uh, and whether it's for workplace inclusion mm -hmm. or diversity and inclusion or uh, also, uh, you know, publishing innovations, you know, uh, all, all these aspects, I think, uh, are extremely rewarding. Uh, the fight for freedom to publish is something I was also personally, I am personally uh, very uh, passionate about. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, uh, the, the IPA, which is human rights mandate, was, was uh, yeah, a perfect match for me. Okay. And last question I have is, what are some of the exciting things that we can expect from the IPA in the next uh, five to ten years? Well, the, the, in, the, in the near future, of course, is the IPA Congress in yep. Lillehammer. Okay. In, uh, in Norway, <laughs> no way yet. Come, it's uh, next year in uh, uh, in, in June, um, and this, the SDGs are prominently uh, on on the agenda there. Um, what I like about the, the the IPA, in a way, it's it's an old organization. In a sense has been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was started all around copyrights, which mm -hmm. sounds maybe very. Um, boring for some people. <laughs> yeah. um, it has been an enabler of innovation and an, an enabler of change and, and an enabler of, of, I would say, also diversity. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's great that we still have that. Um, and I see that uh, the current IPA leadership is fully embracing not only that and freedom to publish, um, but also fighting literacy, uh, doing more around the SDG. So I'm very happy that that, that contribution to society or that's kind of reshaping the world we live in is so prominently on the agenda there. And I think mm -hmm. that will only grow over, over time. Okay. Well, Mikael, thank you so much for your time. I do really appreciate it. I know that you're, you're very, you're busy individual. Um, thank you so much for everything that you've 
contributed and will contrib- uh, continue to contribute in the future. And uh, yeah, we're just really grateful that uh, you were available for, for this particular podcast. So thank you so much. Great. No, I enjoyed this wonderful conversation. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay. Talk soon. Thank you once again for joining us for another episode of Diversity and Inclusion. Our deepest thanks and our gratitude goes out to Dr. Mihil Coleman. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at M-I-C-H-I-E-L-A-M-S. And to find out more about the International Publishers Association, uh, you can go to their website at www.internationalpublishers.org and also follow us on Instagram at U-P-E-N-D-O underscore underscore books and also please leave us any type of comments uh, with regard to the types of guests you would like for us to contact and also please give us a rating as well on iTunes Thank you so much and we will see you next time.